This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to Beyond Zero Community Show. I'm your host, Andy. I've got Vivian on the line to tell us all about this evening's show. Are you there, Vivian? Yes, I am, Andy. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Excellent. Um, I'm a bit stunned, though, still, from last week's uh, Energy Summit. You know, I'm just trying to process everything I learned there, and I, you know, I was really confronted with um, how the business class is sort of duck, you know, they haven't got the policy framework from government, and the government seems to be paralysed, and today apparently our cabinet of our government they, they are discussing the energy policy, so before next week there'll probably be a, be a new energy po- policy, but mm. I really had the feeling of being there that really the energy has got to come from outside they seem to be starved of ideas Yeah, you would, didn't seem overall really optimistic whether... <laughs> Yeah, no, what kind was, of response you'd get last week? No, you have to be there. You know, just the setup of the place, it was all dodgy and uh, limited and people blaming each other. And I just thought, oh, there's, you know, when we're in Beyond Zero Emissions people, they're, they're also um, inventive and, and future-looking and let's cooperate and let's work out what to do for climate change. But I think those people, both in the big business sector and the government sector, don't really have climate change very much at the front of mind. You know, yeah. they're just not thinking about the dying corals and the More massive bushfires in California. Yeah, that's right. They're looking inwards rather than looking outwards at all the signs that are there for us. But there was one good sign I just read about today, which listeners might like to look up. You know, something to keep you up to date. That today's Renew Economy has an article. Apparently, there's a new organisation which is being launched by Oliver Yates and Simon Corbell, and it's called the Clean Energy Derivatives. Corporation. Now, don't ask me what it's about, but I think we'll try and interview those two guys later on. But it's something that will fast forward the uptake of renewable energy, cool. make give them certainty. I'll yeah. give that another mention at the end there as well. Do yeah, the new economy. Um, but tonight's show is uh, we're going to finish at the end. We're going to have Tim Buckley from IEFA did an, an interview um, uh, about Whitehaven Coal because we've been following that story, Whitehaven Coal. A lot of people protested about that mine even starting yeah. and, you know, did all sorts of actions to stop that, but it went ahead. And mm-hmm. Whitehaven Coal is actually making money at the moment. So Tim Buckley's a financial analyst and he he is quite an interesting and detailed explanation of that if listeners are interested. It's been in the news all this week too, yeah. Whitehaven Coal. And um, But that's at the end. But we're going to start off with the Rethinking Cement report. And I went up to Newcastle to see the launch of that report by Beyond Zero Emissions. Like, we're, we're always breaking ground with Beyond Zero. It's kind of going out on a limb. Who else is talking about cement? But we are. And it was a wonderful night. And this new university, it was the opposite of stodgy, beautiful university. It was all kind of little conversation spots for students and yeah it wasn't really an old-fashioned university with the person at the front and everybody else facing forward it was all very innovative and uh, there were a lot of architects there and engineers and people like that and they if listeners are thinking oh i'm going to turn off i'm not interested in cement just hang in there because it was actually an exciting night and michael lord who's a beyond zero emissions um researcher he he made it really really clear 
and we're going to start with an interview I did with um, two of the people who, uh, you know, wanted to dedicate this Rethinking Cement to their daughter and wife. Uh, Geordie Bates was his wife and Catherine Bennett was her daughter. Jo um, um, Jen Bates died and they, very sad, you know, it's very tragic. She mm -hmm. was a key person in Beyond Zero uh, Newcastle and so they d dedicated it, uh, the report to her and I would like to dedicate this show to her, to Jen Bates who was such a BZD enthusiast. So yeah. I think if we listen to that uh, interview with them first and then Michael Lord on the Rethinking Cement. Sounds great. All right. I'll start her up and I'll talk Thanks. to you soon, Viv. Thank you, Andy. Bye-bye. The launch of Beyond Zero Emissions' latest report was dedicated to the late Jen Bates. And I'm in Newcastle tonight with her mother and her husband to tell us about her. So welcome, Geordie and Catherine. Thank you very much for talking to us. I'd like you to just start by telling us a little about what sort of person she was in that she ended up being the coordinator of the Newcastle Beyond Zero Emissions Group, but she'd done so many exciting travels and interesting things before in her life. Just tell us what sort of person she was. Well, let's start from her primary school days then. I um, often think that her interest in environmental things started when she watched a tree be um, felled in her primary school yard, a tree that she was very fond of, um, and then watched a building, a new, new school building, be erected. Um, her teacher at the time uh, used to take her aside and the two of them used to, to chat about what was happening and why it was happening, and, and, and I think that planted the seeds very early on. What about you, Geordie? What do you think sort of motivated her? Yeah, well, I, um, I mean, Jen always had a very strong environmental conscience, so that was that was clear um, from the first time I, I met her, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw that sort of grow as she, as she matured as a, mm -hmm. as a woman and as she started her professional career and worked through her professional career and she, she saw opportunities to, to implement uh, that mm -hmm. environmental conscience of hers. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, she had been looking for a while for opportunities to, to volunteer, um, which was another passion of hers, to, to work you know, in her community, and, um, and particularly for an environmental cause. And I think when she came across BZD and what they stood for, mm. for her it clicked straight away and it, was, um, it, it really matched her values in terms of you know, their vision, which is a grand vision I yeah. think that they wanted to achieve, and, and um, she definitely connected with that vision. And, so, um, and for her, yeah, she, was, um, she became very committed to the BZD cause. Well, I only ever heard of her. I never met her, but I, I used to work with Geordie's parents and we used to talk at lunchtime about different things and um, they used to tell me about your experiences travelling and that you always seem to be in the most exotic locations. So tell me a bit about her travels with you. Yeah, so, um, so Jen and I met uh, 13 years ago or so <laughs> um, and uh, Jen had done a lot of travelling before I met her as, and mm -hmm. I, I'd always enjoyed travelling as well so um, that was one of the things that we were able to connect over and then uh, unfortunately only a couple of months after we started going out Jen um, took off to Tasmania for a year to do her fourth year of university <laughs> so we did the long distance relationship there but that was again that was part of her, um, her um, you know her travel side of things. And the reason that she went to Tasmania, that was to do her fourth year of architecture studies because of the environmental teaching in Tasmania that wasn't then offered here at Newcastle Uni. Mm. Mm. 
Yes, I was just going to say then, um, and then uh, a few years later, both uh, Jen and I uh, lived for a year overseas, um, lived and worked overseas, um, volunteering with the Australian Government as part of the AusAid program. Um, And so Jen actually, so we both applied for separate positions and we were both successful in those. So um, Jen ended up living and working for a year in the Philippines and I lived and worked for a year in Vietnam at the same time. Um, So again, we were apart for that year, but in a a way we were together as well because we were both... um, you know, uh, you know, carrying out our own adventure mm-hmm. and working. So that was that was good. And then we got back together again, and um, and we decided that we wanted to do it again, um, but this time together. And so we were lucky enough to get an opportunity in 2015 um, to go live in Bhutan for a year in the Himalayas. And so we did that for a year, and we were together for that year, which was which was good. Yeah. And um, and that was an amazing experience living over there. So yeah, I'm definitely sort of travel but also living and working overseas where you can really um take in the local culture i think at a, to a deeper level mm. um that was a big part of both of us i think climate change has been going on in all our lives it seems to be for me about the last 20 years of my life i've really been aware of it and in the last 10 i've been doing this sort of work uh, it's when you travel you see it's impacting in different countries in a different way um, we've just recently been to Malaysia and tonight's talk was about cement and we saw so much cement being churned in Malaysia as massive buildings were put up all around the coast even on reclaimed land from the sea you know massive and I thought wow there's a different thing going on climate change is one thing there sort of at the side of the attention and here it's starting to be uh, something we're trying to solve what were her ideas about climate change you know do you do you remember her when she first sort of hit on it that as we all did uh, and what did she say about it oh i think she was very early on aware that climate change was was real um, and that it was something that needed to be managed and that she wanted to learn more about it and to do what what she could uh, about it hence hence her great interest and and respect for bzd um. Yeah, and, and I think uh, I mean I, I think it was always something that was in, ingrained with her. This is very strong environmental conscience, like yeah. I was saying before, and and uh, you know she started. I, I think what really impressed me about Jen was she, um, you know she wasn't an expert in some of these environmental matters, mm-hmm. and particularly climate change. You know she um, she did her studies in, in architecture initially, and then started mm-hmm. working the um, in the building industry with with public works, but. But this passion of hers, you know, that was, I think, very, very much a deep-founded passion, mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of took her to, and also a, um, a passion for learning, you mm-hmm. know. And those two, I think, combined very well. And for her, she wanted to learn more about it, mm-hmm. you know, in the first instance, so that then she could have a, an informed opinion. You know, she completed her master's degree um, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, and a lot of that was, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of environmental subjects to learn more about climate change, so that then she could contribute in her own way through BZD and, and other forums as well. You know, so a lot of people, I think, operate within their sphere of influence, yeah. you know, for um, environmental uh, environmental improvements and environmental work. But I think, Jen, you know, what was remarkable about her was that her ability to sort of increase that sphere, you know, and, she's, and she saw an opportunity to sort of really have that grand vision, just like BZD did, and she, and she saw that as a great way that she could contribute in that area. Yeah. 
One of her other great skills is is her organisational capacity, um, and I, I know that that's one of the things that BZD really uh, appreciated about her. That that within the the time frame that that she um, had had chaired the um, the Newcastle chapter, um, their capacity their their, their um, uh, activity level had increased um, dramatically um, and she got people coordinated and organised and spreadsheets and um, that, that really was a great strength of hers mm. um, uh, and, and is now a legacy that, that um, I've been talking to the organisers about tonight they, all of them have, have said they've all been thinking what would Jen do? How would Jen have done it? Yeah, mm. well, that's sort of what I wanted to get to, the legacy, and it's so sad, really, this, I don't know how you could really be sitting here and seeing that lovely photo of her, which my son sent me that photo, because he was working in Maitland that day, and he sent me a photo of the Newcastle paper with the lady with a BZE t-shirt, and he said, do you know this lady, and I was very shocked, and the ripple went through beyond zero emission, even though we're set out from Canberra to Melbourne to Brisbane to here to Sydney, and here, like, oh, this that's such a very sad loss and I'm very sorry for you both that it's so must be very fresh you've tried to give a legacy to her by offering you know um, some of the fundraising you you made uh, crowdfunding I think you talked about Judy um, what what do you think about legacies do you want to say a bit more about that yeah look that's a that's a hard question i mean um for me jen's legacy is every day in my life you know mm. um you know i think about her all the time and there's there's everything in our house obviously it'd be mm. the same for for catherine here and mm. and um and you know our broader family but i think i think it's um to, to me what's uh, surprised me and one of the anecdotes i um, i gave tonight was just how big that ripple was you know and even for example you know friends of mine who, who never even met Jen, you know, mm. just to hear that story and to hear how much she'd have been able to achieve in her life. You know, she had so many hobbies outside work, you know, mm. in addition to, you know, being very well respected as as a, an architect and project manager, but also having all those extra hobbies and also volunteering with BZD and, and mm. clearly making, you know, significant changes within the BZD family. Mm. I think a lot of people were able, were able to connect, you know, with that and be, be so impressed at what Jen was able to achieve in her 36 years. And so, you know, the anecdote I said I am um, told tonight was a guy who I know who didn't even know Jen, mm. but just to be able to make that connection and say, well, you know, um, she was the same age as, as my wife, for example, and, you know, I'm going to try and make a change in my life, you know, to um, to acknowledge that legacy of, of Jen's and, you know, I'm, I'm going to donate to BZE, I'm going to, I'm going to um, you know, offer a present to my, to my wife. And I think, you know, I've, I've heard many stories like that that, that rippled across the Newcastle community as a, as a very tight community here yeah. in Newcastle. And, and um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been so impressed that, that, you know, that the Newcastle community has been able to come together and, and um, try to, each in their own way, try to build on mm. Jen's legacy that way. Yeah. Thank you. I know, look, the climate change thing has actually brought out the best in so many people and we need all of them because it's actually a rare type of person who does this work. It's very hard to face. Well, I was going to add that one of the things that was said um, at her funeral or, or following her funeral um, uh, was that in her short 36 years of life um, she'd achieved more than most people with uh, a long uh, a long life and, and, a, and a yeah uh, a profitable life um, 
Jennifer's legacy does live on. It lives on through through many people and many people around the world because of the the, the, the travels that she and Geordie did. They have connections everywhere. Um, and um, for me, I think that's that's one of the ways that I can cope with the fact that she's not here in person. I hope so. Thank you very much for talking. It's very hard to talk, but you've done the best thing you can to leave this legacy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. For most people, they haven't thought about much about cement in the first place. <laughs> so now we're asking you to, to rethink cement. Um, and we do need to start to think about it because, as Vanessa said, uh, it's, it's a big source of global emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and um, we're not talking about it. Um, Vanessa made the comparison with cars. We do hear about alternatives with cars, very little about cement. Um, but as we're going to hear, Australia is one of the, the best places to tackle the issue of emissions uh, from cement uh, and to develop some of the technologies that are going to take us uh, into, the, into a low-carbon future. So this report uh, is the first uh, of a series in the Zero Carbon Industry Plan. And the reason we've chosen industry as a sector, um, it's one sector that um, Beyond Zero Emissions hasn't looked at yet. And it's a really significant sector as a whole. So it's the, the, this is a, uh, a chart of Australia's emissions, and all the orange areas are uh, the emissions contributed by industry. And when I'm saying industry, I mean the manufacturing of materials. So materials like cement and metals and chemicals and plastics. So those emissions come from industry's use of uh, electricity, uh, of direct combustion, which is the heat, and that will probably be our next research area, and non-energy emissions, of which uh, cement is a contributor to that. And if, and if we saw this same chart for the planets, so, so, uh, industry would actually be an even bigger proportion because Australia is not you know, a big uh, industri industrial nation compared to something like China. So we make a lot of cement. This is a global figure, 4 billion tonnes uh, of cement. And we make a lot of it because cement uh, is the key ingredient of concrete. 
and concrete is everywhere as we've heard it's, 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 it's so common as to be almost invisible we've, we've stopped noticing it and it's, and it's not going away we're going to continue needing this amount uh, and maybe a bit more in the decades to come and a lot of that demand is going to be driven by developing countries countries like China, India, Indonesia, Brazil as they urbanise and expand their cities cities that will be built out of concrete and the problem from a climate change point of view is that every tonne we make of cement, we produce nearly a tonne of carbon dioxide. And as we've heard, that adds up to 8% of world emissions. And as a proportion of world emissions, that's rising. 8% of world emissions are rising. Uh, that's because... We're starting to see our way to solutions in other areas, particularly in electricity generation, uh, transport, and some other areas. And as we reduce the emissions, as we must, uh, by 2050, cement emissions alone, just the production of this one material, could be a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. Like other industries, uh, the, uh, the, the global cement industry has got together uh, on several occasions to plan how they could tackle their emissions, and they have come up with different proposals, but in general they don't say that they could reduce more than a quarter of their emissions. So even if, even if the cement industry achieves the targets that, the, that they're setting themselves and call ambitious, their maximum targets, by 2050, cement will still be a fifth of emissions. So, so we need to do better on cement. It's a stubborn source of emissions. And the reason is really uh, wrapped up in the way that cement is made. It's a, it's a high energy process. Uh, you require electricity to, to grind material and uh, to move it about. But... When, as we move towards renewable forms of electricity, those emissions uh, can be eliminated. It's also a very high temperature process. So um, the main process takes place in a cement kiln, which you need temperatures of up to uh, nearly 1,500 degrees. And normally we burn fossil fuels to get that. But we could imagine a way of getting to 1,500 degrees in a kiln without fossil fuels in the future. But the really difficult emissions from cement the reason why they're hard to eliminate, and it's actually most of the emissions, is due to is, is process emissions. And by that I mean it's a chemical reaction that occurs uh, when you take calcium carbonate, which is the main raw material for cement, usually um, limestone, calcium carbonate in the form of limestone. You grind it, you heat it in the cement kiln, and as it gets hot, it uh, decomposes and releases carbon dioxide. And as long as you make cement that way, which is the way it's been made now for 200 years, you, are, you, you can't avoid the fact that it's emitting carbon dioxide. There's no way around it. And that's why it's a really tricky sector and one of the reasons probably that it's not discussed a lot. And, and that's why we've taken it on as a challenge with these to say how can we get rid of those emissions. We've focused on those emissions, the emissions that people say uh, we're stuck with. We've developed a pathway for the Australian cement industry to get to uh, zero carbon. As Vanessa said, we've, we've read quite a bit about cement over the last year or so, and we haven't found any other national pathway uh, like this that says that the entire industry can get to zero. And we're not saying this is the only way it can happen, but this is one way it can happen, so we hope to start a conversation um, about a solution in this sector. 
So we've developed four or five complementary strategies which uh, get those emissions down to zero. And this isn't just about reducing uh, emissions, but it would be good for Australian industry and the Australian economy because if we develop these cements and these technologies, we'll be developing uh, technologies that we can sell to the world and position Australia as a leader in a new global industry or industries. This is an overview of um, what these, uh, how these strategies work. So they're needed in combination to take us from uh, where we are now with emissions, uh, those emissions from limestone, to zero, which is that line there. And we've actually, we believe we're actually be able to get beyond zero, beyond zero emissions. Uh, and I'll explain that as I explain the strategies one, two, three, four, and then a couple of strategies that we could we could employ beyond the ten year time frame. So beyond zero emissions likes to show that we can not just get to zero emissions, but do it in ten years. And we believe we've shown that in the cement sector. The strategy. Strategy one is to use geopolymer cements. Uh, geopolymer cements are an alternative um, class of cements. The interesting thing about them from our perspective uh, is that they don't require any of this limestone-based material. It's called clinker. The main, the main material in cement is called clinker, which is what made the cement kill. Ge geopolymer cements don't um, contain uh, any clinker, or they don't need to. They're made they can be made from a variety of materials that are high in silicon and aluminium, but these are the three that we focus on. So it's fly ash, which is the main waste product of coal-fired power stations. Um, slag, or to give it its long-winded name, ground granulated blast furnace slag, uh, which is a byproduct of uh, making iron in a blast furnace. And metacalin, which is essentially uh, heat-treated kaolinite, which is a type of clay. And uh, there's, a, there's a kind of what I scientifically call a, a magic ingredient in geopolymer cements, uh, which is an alkali activator, uh, a very strongly alkaline solution that you add to these materials uh, when you're making the concrete, the geopolymer concrete, and that, that triggers the reactions that, that allow these materials to, to cement the aggregates and become concrete. They've now been demonstrated to be able to replace traditional cement for any purpose, They're not just a niche product, they've been demonstrated for all sorts of things, and crucially, they're already at a similar cost to Portland cement. Uh, a bit more expensive at the moment, but as we start to mass produce them, there's no reason why they can't down, come down to a equivalent price or even cheaper, because the raw materials are quite cheap. In several areas, they can actually outperform traditional cement. Um, so in flexural strength, which is uh, concrete has compressed, huge compressive strength, which is the main kind of quality of it, but also it needs to have some flexural strength ability to be bent without cracking. They're, they're stronger, geopolymer concretes are stronger in that way. They're more fire resistant. Um, they shrink less as they dry, which is important for construction. And they're resistant to a range, more resistant to a range of uh, kind of hostile chemicals which affect regular cement. And I've got a picture here of two samples of concrete. One is traditional one on the right, and this one is some geopolymer cement made by Rockler, uh, one of the Australian companies that already make geopolymer cement. And this, these samples have been left in the sewer tank, which is quite acidic, for two and a half years. And you can see that the traditional one has suffered quite badly in that two and a half years, and the geopolymer one looks like you just, you just put it in. So that's, that's one advantage they have. A lot of the examples of geopolymer cements have actually taken place in Australia. 
there's a company called Zeobond in Australia which has a proprietary uh, geopolymer concrete called Ecrete and this is some of their uh, the uses, the projects that have used Ecrete in and around Melbourne there's 20 here, but there's actually about 50 in reality, all sorts from very small scale sort of driveways to housing foundations to parts of buildings and retaining walls. The Global Change Institute at the University of Queensland was the first uh, building to be built with pre-capped geopolymer cement. So it's a five-storey building built a couple of years ago. Uh, that was by a company called Wagner's, who also have built the world's largest geopolymer project. So uh, this is Brisbane West Airport, which used 50,000 cubic metres of geopolymer concrete. And the, these projects have gone a long way to demonstrating that geopolymer cements have, have arrived and we can, now, we can now use them on a mass scale and they can begin to replace uh, the problematic uh, traditional cements. So that's strategy one. Strategy two is um, an alternative cement, but we've coined a, a phrase, high blend cement, because it wasn't really a collective name for what we're talking about here, so we're hoping this will catch on, high blend cement. And these are more like the traditional uh, cement, which is called Portland cement, and what we want to do is replace more and more of the, the clinker, the high empty clinker, in those uh, important cement with alternative materials. Now, this is, a, this is already starting to happen. Uh, the industry is already using um, supplementary material more and more, and in Australia they're up to about 30% uh, of clinker substitution. But we think that um, there's, with new technology, new software, more of a uh, better understanding of cement mixes that we have now, and also new grinding technology, that we can increase that proportion up to 70%. So the cements will only contain 30% of clinker. And the materials we're talking about are actually the same materials that uh, I just spoke about for geopolymers. So they're complementary. Um, they may be quite different ways, but they're complementary strategies because they use the same materials. So there are, there, there, again, there are, uh, there are some big heavy-duty examples of using high-blend cements, getting towards that 70% that, we've, that is a goal by the end of our 10-year strategy. The Crossrail project in London, um, it's a huge rail project, I don't know, 20, um, 20 billion pounds or something like that. They have achieved an average of 50% clinical replacement uh, across that project, and in certain instances they've achieved uh, over 70%. The most uh, famous Australian example, I think, is the Pixel Building, which is the colourful building um, pictured, uh, where the parts of the building were built with um, cement uh, with 60% replacement of um, uh, the clinker. There's a port in Johannesburg, the world's largest inland port. Uh, they had an upgrade and they used this meant with 68% fly ash. And there's a Swiss company now, LC3, setting up uh, to uh, uniquely produce these high-blend cements. And they're, they're interesting because they're using metacaol and this heat-treated clay with ground limestone. So when they're using limestone, it's ground, so it's very low carbon. It's not, it's not heated. It still retains its carbon dioxide. We're saying that these two cements together can account for the entire cement market by 10 years' time. And if we did that uh, the way we've outlined, we'd only need 15% of the kind of traditional clinker, high-emitting clinker that we use today. So we've still got the, those 15% of emissions. We haven't got to zero yet. And our way of getting to zero is this technology called mineral carbonation. 
now as we go, we've got a, a Marcus store here from Mineral Carbonation International, who are uh, one of the companies in the world trying to commercialise this this product. So I'm not going to say more about it, otherwise, you know, Marcus will have to waste time correcting me. Um, but it has great potential for absorbing the emissions from lots of processes. But for our purposes, we're interested in uh, attaching this to a cement kiln. Strategy four is to just avoid using cement in the first place. So this is analogous to uh, energy efficiency in the energy space. It's probably it's actually the best strategy. Just don't use it in the first place. And if, if we felt you could get away with using no cement in our economy, we'd say that, but we just don't think it's feasible. But you can minimise it, and we think um, using a couple of strategies, we'll be able to flatten demand that outputs <coughs> to have no growth in cement. And one of the ways is just by putting more effort into designing structures that use less concrete. So in our conversations with structural engineers um, as part of this research, it's been interesting to find out how little incentive and how little effort there is on, on behalf of structural engineers to minimise the materials used in their structures. Um, they're working against the clock. It's a conservative profession. Um, but there are, there are huge gains to be made, um, for example, through um, software optimization and more interesting shapes of the concrete and really taking advantage of the fact that concrete, when you lay it, is a fluid, so it can be used in any shape. It doesn't have to be a block. The, uh, the other strategy for minimizing cement, and this is probably my kind of favorite strategy um, in, in, the, uh, in the book, is to replace concrete with timber. So I think we're on, the, we're on the edge now of a kind of renaissance of timber construction. And this is being led by a new generation of engineered wood products. So the most, most well-known that you might have heard of is called cross-laminated timber, um, where you put kind of layers of timber together and, then, and it makes a very strong source of timber that you can use for construction. And we're saying in the book, the main, the main constraint on this really is availability of timber. But we think there's enough uh, in Australia, timber that's wasted, timber that just goes into very low value uses like pulp and packaging and making, um, uh, making pallets. We think there's enough to, to make 20% of our buildings in 10 years time from timber. And we're starting to see some great examples. Uh, this one here at the top, the Forte building in Melbourne, when it was built, that ten-story uh, apartment block, that was the tallest timber building uh, in the in the world. And like a lot of timber buildings of this size, it's actually cheaper to make, which is one reason I think it's going to take off. Um, well, uh, probably without a lot of you know kind of policy, because they're they're very quick to construct. Uh, all the detail is done in a factory, and then on site they go up very quickly uh, from these big cost savings. The, the, the one on the left is just being completed now. That's an 18-storey timber building. Uh, it's 18 storeys in the top 17 in timber. Um, so we're starting to see you know, even very tall buildings uh, become possible uh, because of timber. And not only does every building you make out of timber eliminate the need for most of the concrete and, and the steel, another high-missing uh, material uh, in construction, but it actually sequesters carbon. So for, for every metre cubed of timber, I think you sequester um, half a tonne of carbon. Anyway, a lot of carbon. 
So if you look at the top bar here, these, uh, this is, uh, this, the, those strategies take us to zero, as I said, and the reason it takes us beyond, beyond zero is that, that timber that's sequestering carbon. So we think we've been able to go beyond zero emissions in just, in just 10 years. And then you'll see there's a lower bar, which is what we might be able to do in the longer term. Part of that is just extending strategy four, um, so using more timber, and instead of making 20% of our buildings with timber, building 40% of our buildings with timber. But we just need time to do that to get the wood. We, we don't want a strategy that says we're just going to import the wood from elsewhere. We need, we need time for the trees to grow, and unfortunately they take 20 or 30 years, even the fast-growing ones. Um, strategy five uh, is, is a really fascinating one. Um, we didn't put it as part of our 10-year strategy because it involves a type of cement that isn't really commercialised yet. So it, it, didn't, it didn't seem that we could put it in a 10-year strategy, but they ha it holds such potential that it's something that we should research, and that's carbon-negative cements. So the, 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 the chemistry of these potential cements is in some ways similar to the chemistry involved in mineral carbonation. It involves uh, similar magnesium silicate rock. Uh, and when you make it, uh, during the manufacturing and the curing of the concrete, it absorbs carbon dioxide. So there's the potential that for every tonne you make of these cements, uh, you you absorb half a tonne of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And if you think that we make four billion tonnes a year of cement, if we did this on any large scale, it would have huge potential in the fight against climate change and turn our cities into carbon sinks. Uh, so as I say, it's not proven, but it's definitely worthy of further research. There was a, there was a UK company that tried to commercialise this, called Novacen. Um, they didn't publish a lot on what they found, but they claimed it was possible. Um, and their IP has been bought by an Australian company called Calix. So we want to see more work in that area. One thing is really important to get across when you're, when you're talking about cements, because we make so much of them, is whatever solution you can come up with, there's got to be enough material to make it. Um, so one thing we'd be very careful to do is quantify the amount of materials um, our strategies require and, and to, to show that, that, that they're available. Um, I won't talk about all the materials, but you can see that the main one, the dominant one, about, we need about 5.5 million tonnes, is fly ash. So fly ash is a byproduct of coal-fired power stations, but it's really important that you don't go away thinking that we need coal-fired power stations to keep running <laughs> to, allow these pro uh, to enable these strategies. Uh, that isn't the case because we've been burning coal for a long time now, we haven't been doing a lot with the fly ash, so it's sitting there in stockpiles next to power stations around Australia. And hard to get exact figures, but we've got at least 400 million tonnes of fly ash. Uh, now, you do need to process that a bit. It might have become contaminated, it might have become wet, but you know, it's, it's not a huge obstacle. It's nothing like the processing that limestone needs to go through to become cement. So we think this, four and a half, this 400 million tonnes of fly ash um, should be seen as a, as a great resource of Australia um, and we should turn it into cement. 
And you should also say that it's actually a problem at the moment. Um, it has to be managed. Um, it can't be allowed to just blow about, which it would do if it was just left. And, and in fact, it, it did start blowing around the time of the town of Port Augusta at the beginning of this year, uh, next to the closed fire, coal fire power station there, and all the residents were having to breathe it in. So it would, it would be a good, you know, for quite apart from climate change, it would be a good thing if we used all that fire. So these strategies are not going to happen uh, quickly enough or, or overnight unless we try and make them happen. So we've got a section at the end of the report on how we do that, policies and things that industry can do to make it happen. One of the, one of the most important things that could help all, all of the strategies I've spoken about uh, would be a price on carbon. Um, and that price would have to obviously include cement, but when we had a price on carbon before it actually excluded cement, and it would have to include uh, a price on the imported cement, because otherwise you're just going to shift manufacturing overseas, and there's no point in doing that. Uh, we'd also like to see government investment uh, into R&D and deployment of these cements. And we've got an excellent model for that, which is renewable energy. And we've got two organisations that, that do exactly that, uh, ARENA and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And also all you need to do is extend their remit to include cements. Uh, and we think we'd really start to see advances then. Uh, there should be an increase in incentives from the sustainability ratings tools. So Green Star is one of them, but there are others. Uh, there are other ratings tools, and from from what we hear, talking to construction companies, etc. At the moment, the incentives aren't quite big enough for them to uh, uh, use these alternative cements. Uh, they, they they stick with the old ones. They don't get enough points in these tools. So we're talking to Green Star, uh, Green Buildings Council, and others to get them to increase their incentives. We think that governments and construction firms should use their procurement power to to start buying these uh, low-carbon cements. And in our early conversations with governments and industry, they they are open to that idea and very interested. And lastly, we think the cement industry itself should set emissions reductions targets and that those targets should decline to zero over time and not just be business as usual reduction. So this this is an opportunity for Australia uh, to create the the world's first zero carbon cement industry. Portland cement is a 200-year-old technology. It's evolved a bit, but it's based on a 200-year technology. It's it's really time for an update. And Australia is the right place to do it. Some of the the world-leading projects have already taken place here. We've got the skills, we've got the know-how, and we've also got the resources in terms of uh, things like the fly ash and also the required clays. So let's create these new technologies establish a zero carbon industry, cement industry here, and then sell it to the rest of the world. I was reading the financial section of the Age newspaper about a week ago, and the headline jumped out at me. Whitehaven Coal digs big net profit after tax of $405 million. Well, I'm taken aback. Really, can this be true? Dirt Radio's done a lot of coverage of the Whitehaven coal mine in northern New South Wales a couple of years back. Malls Creek, the Lurd Forest Blockade, Frontline Action on Coal campaign. I guess you could say the campaign was lost because the mine ultimately went ahead. 
Buzz, but does the headline mean that the coal company has really won big time? I wanted to find out more, so I contacted Tim Buckley. Tim works at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, and he's been following the development of the Whitehaven Coal Mine for several years. He's on the phone from Sydney. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. And I wanted to start by uh, maybe asking a bit of a naive question. I thought, and I suppose this is putting on my fairly optimistic environment hat, I thought coal was heading towards being a stranded asset. How come they're making so much money and, and they're saying that it's it's record-breaking profits? Well, it's a very good question. The answer is, is not easy, but in the short term, Whitehaven is absolutely in a sweet spot. They're having record high production and thanks to a dramatic and ongoing tightening of energy policy in China, the coal price, both the thermal coal price and the coking coal price, coking used for steel, thermal used for power generation, both have doubled in the last 12 months. But it's worth looking at the long term. In the last five, six years, Whitehaven has lost money more times than not, and its share price, although it's rallied dramatically on the back of a record profit, it is still down 50% on where it was six, seven years ago. Uh, But nonetheless, Whitehaven is a well-run company. It is uh, financially robust. It is delivering record production. And as I said, thanks to the Chinese, the coal price has strengthened dramatically. So in the near term, profits are going very, very robustly for Whitehaven. Basically what you're saying, I suppose, just to reiterate, is that given their their lack lack of profitability over the last few years, the profit that they're making at this point looks very dramatic, but maybe in the long term not so. Well, ultimately, Whitehaven is a strong company. It's got a a focus management team, um, and I've always said I think Whitehaven will be one of the last coal companies standing globally um, because to say that they've got strong management is a rarity in the coal industry. I mean, you don't have to look at the U.S. coal industry. Almost every major listed company in the coal sector in America went into bankruptcy last year. And uh, on the back of that dramatic move, so Peabody, for example, went from an $18 billion market capitalization to zero mm-hmm. in the space of five years. So the value destruction in the coal sector globally has been extreme. There is a short-term reprieve, but ultimately I'd go back to the core reason why Whitehaven just reported a record result, and that is that the Chinese government is absolutely clear it is going to transform its energy markets systematically, progressively, and with one clear objective, and that is to transform to a low-emissions energy profile of the future. And if anything, Whitehaven is getting a near-term kick thanks to the Chinese government forcing the coal price globally to double in literally 12 months because what China didn't want to do is follow the U.S. industry into receivership. China has 6 million coal miners and all of its companies are extremely financially leveraged. So the last thing China wanted to do was tip 6 million workers Mm. onto the scrap heap 
too early. So it deliberately pushed the coal price up in order to restore near-term profitability mm. of the coal mining sector as a clear part of transforming away from coal in the long term. Hmm. That's very, very interesting, Tim. Very interesting. The other thing, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you as a, a kind of a bit, you're probably aware of this. I'm, I'm fairly uh, naive in, in, in terms of all these um, technical things and, and probably fairly financially illiterate in terms of talking about coal prices and so on. But my understanding is that there are different types of coal. And, and one of the things that's making Whitehaven profitable is the fact that it's using or it's mining um, coal that can be used for making metals, metallurgical coal. Is, is, that, is that correct? That's correct. So there are two types, or primarily two types of coal or end uses for coal. There is coking coal or metallurgical coal for steel production, and there is thermal coal for use in power generation. Now, 90% of the world's coal is used for power generation and only 10% of the world's coal is used for coking coal or for steel production. Uh, Whitehaven has a large exposure to coking coal and that is certainly not a product that is in structural decline. It is the thermal coal sector that in my view is structurally challenged because it's the power generation sector globally that is going through a technology driven transformation and maybe just to to highlight that the power sector means the electricity sector you can generate electricity from nuclear from coal from gas and increasingly from wind solar hydro so in china in literally just the last two months china installed 24 1,000 megawatts of solar in just two months. Now, 24,000 megawatts is about a half to a third of the Australian electricity market in aggregate. Mm. So China installed half the Australian electricity market in solar in just two months. Mm. So when I talk about an inevitable, clear policy framework that China is putting forward. There is no way China is moving away from that policy direction. They are moving to a low emissions profile of the future. They are transforming their energy market. It's driven by technology. The cost of that technology is getting cheaper with every month, with every year, and that is a headwind that the coal industry, particularly the thermal coal industry, has to face up to. If they don't, they'll just end up as dinosaurs, as stranded assets. Mm. And just uh, finally, maybe we just need to relate this all to the Adani mine. And uh, I know there's been lots of thinking, I suppose, in the financial sector, but elsewhere as policy makers as well. What are the implications in relation to that mine going ahead? Well, it's, it's a bizarre situation where Adani has invested so much political capital and economic capital into a a proposed project that they've possibly gone too far for them to be willing to pull out. But at the end of the day, they don't have the financial capacity to complete the mine without support of global financial institutions. And those global financial institutions are quickly running in the opposite direction, saying they don't want anything to do with new, low-quality thermal coal mines because they see that the sector is facing this enormous headwind. Now, You only have to look at the events in India in the last couple of months. The cost of solar in India in 2017 has dropped 30% year-to-date, 
and new solar projects are cheaper than existing thermal power generation in India. So the Indian government is now 100% aligned with the Chinese government. They are transforming their energy market. They see solar and wind as the lowest cost source of new electricity generation and so they're rapidly transforming their economy as is China and again you come back to why would anyone logically build the Carmichael coal mine to Mm. supply low quality thermal coal to India when the Indian government's telling Mm. you solar is the cheap option Mm. so the only way this mine can actually get up and running is if the Australian government, in my view, is stupid enough to offer a billion-dollar uh, subsidy mm. to buy to to mm. effectively pay for them to get the mine up and running? Mm-hmm. Tim, it's been really interesting talking to you, and I want to I want to thanks thank you so much. And also, look, I'm just thinking about all the things that you've said. I'm I'm going to put it on the pl- in the plus column. <laughs> for thank you for uh, for us dirt radio people and the friends of the earth as well well it's worth bearing in mind solar is now the low cost source of new electricity generation the transformation is inevitable there is hope at the end of this we've just got to stop investing in stranded assets well thanks so much for your time this morning tim and all the best to you my pleasure thank you That was Tim Buckley. He's the Director of Energy Finance Studies, Australasia, at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Welcome back. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Thanks to the guests, Jody Bates, Catherine Bennett, Michael Lord, and Tim Buckley. Thanks to Dirt Radio and, of course, John Langer for his interview there with Tim Buckley and BZD Newcastle for their help. Uh, thank the usual team, Jody and Roger, for the podcast, Viv for the interviews and production, and I'm Andy. I've been putting the whole thing together. We look forward to your company next week, and meanwhile, stay tuned for Voices of Community Energy. This is part one, Mullumbimby, from blockades to 100% renewables, with David Rollins. Thank you again for joining us. Good night. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.